Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Bray, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 47, Pope Leo the First. He is great. He is great. He is great. Leo the Great. Only two popes in the history of the church have stood to earn the epithet of the great, so you know that we are in for it this week. Only two? Only two in the history of the papacy are the great. And they're not that far apart. So this is an era in papal history that gets really, really exciting. And a lot of things happen. And this is going to be our longest episode by far. So we're going to jump right in. Because we have no time to delay. Oh, I was going to say, sorry. They've been trying to make uh, JP2 the great for a little bit here. Like, it's been thrown around. He may be one who actually ends up getting it, but since they have to kind of let him be a saint for a while first and see what happens, so. Yeah, that's fair. With that in mind, here we go. Leo was born around the year 400, either in Tuscany or his ancestors were from Tuscany. His father's name was Quincianus, and he was part of the Roman aristocratic class. This means that Leo had a very comfortable and educated upbringing as one of the Christian elite. We don't know exactly when he entered the church, but we do know that he was serving as a deacon, or maybe even archdeacon, by 431 at the end of Celestine's papacy, but there are other sources that suggest he may have already been in that role by 422 when Celestine became pope. And it is more likely that he did have an earlier start, because by the time in 431 that we can confirm his status as a deacon, he had already developed a very strong reputation for being intelligent, persuasive, well-versed in scripture, extremely pious, and dedicated to the Lord. And oh goodness, are we going to see that? He was also known to have quite the gift for negotiation and reconciliation. And this was a reputation that he was respected with not only in Rome, but well outside Rome at this point already, as we're going to see. And we know by this point in 431 that Leo had already began his career of ecclesiastical diplomacy, if you will, and had already developed influential relationships in Gaul and Alexandria. We know this because in Gaul, we have the famous monk and theologian John Cassian, who we mentioned last week who founded an Egyptian monastery near Marseille, writing one of his major works, De Incarnation Domini Contra Nestorium, which is the incarnation of the Lord against Nestorius, with a letter of dedication to Leo in the preface. And this is what he says, quote, When I had now finished the books of spiritual conferences, the merit of which consists in the thoughts expressed rather than in the language used, since my rude utterances were unequal to the deep thoughts of the saints, I had contemplated and almost determined on taking refuge in silence, as I was ashamed of having exposed my ignorance, that I might as far as possible make up for my audacity in speaking by modestly holding my tongue for the future. But you, Leo, have overcome my determination and purpose by your commendable earnestness and most urgent affection, my dear Leo, my esteemed and highly regarded friend, ornament that you are of the Roman Church and sacred ministry, 
as you drag me forth from the obscurity of the silence on which I had determined, into a public court, which I may well dread, and oblige me to undertake new labors while I am still blushing from my past ones. And though I was unequal to lesser tasks, you compel me to match myself with greater ones. So this man is very, very inspired by Leo already. Oh yeah, he's got a crush. From this letter, we can infer that this large theological writing was created on Leo's suggestion or maybe even his commission. And he goes on to say that if it weren't for Leo's urging and encouragement and inspiration, he likely never would have attempted to write anything ever again. But that he does so because he trusts in Leo's command more than he does in his own ability. So Leo is clearly a man that, while not yet Pope, is already a force to be reckoned with in terms of influence. This is like an Augustine situation. And in Alexandria, we have Cyril, the Bishop of Alexandria, who we've mentioned in the past few episodes, writing to appeal to Rome over ongoing disputes with Juvenal, the Bishop of Jerusalem. Seems that Cyril's just got a problem with everybody at this point. Juvenal was looking to see the bishopric of Jerusalem made into a patriarchate or a primate, which would extend the jurisdiction and authority of the bishop over surrounding areas like all of Palestine, and decrease some of the authority of the patriarchate of Antioch and the metropolitan see of Caesarea, which it was currently subject to. Cyril, of course, took exception to this, even though it's not his own territory and wrote to Rome with the request that Juvenal's ambitions be not approved by the Apostolic See. But this is the interesting part. By all historical accounts, it seems that this letter was addressed to Leo, rather than to Celestine, who would have been the actual pope at the time. A and remember, there is a pope between Celestine and Leo, too. That's the pope we did last week, Sixtus III. So this isn't just a confusion of dates and overlap of time. This is like, this was directly written to Leo during Celestine's papacy on purpose. Oh. Yeah. So this is a deacon with strong enough position to administer in these matters, or he had a significant enough influence with the current Pope so that he could intervene and advise. Or both. So, yeah. It really does seem like both, because there are records under both Pope Celestine and under Pope Sixtus III that Leo was sent out across the empire to settle various ecclesiastical disputes. And some secular disputes as well, interestingly enough. This is by far the most active and influential pre-papal life that we have seen. Aside from Calixtus, who had a pretty active pre-pope life, but that was not a very positive one for the church. So the most important of these disputes that we see Leo involved with was in 440, where he was sent to Gaul by request of the emperor, Valentinian III, to mediate and settle a dispute between two of the most prominent imperial men. This is Aetius, who is Gaul's Magister Militum, the chief military commander. I think you mentioned him a, a couple episodes ago, maybe? Oh, yeah. He is a major, major figure in the scope of the Empire, and he's hugely, hugely important. So he is having a dispute with Cacina Decius Aegeanatus Albinus, who was the chief magistrate and Praetorian prefect. 
Now, unfortunately, we don't know what the actual disagreement was about. Something. Something, yeah, exactly. Our only source for this disagreement and Leo's involvement is from the Chronicle of St. Prosper, which acknowledges the conflict and the fact that it was resolved with no additional information, just like last week. But either way that we look at it, Leo is successful and there is a resolution. So clearly, he's not only got the confidence of the church to settle things, but also of the empire. He was requested by the emperor to come and deal with this. And he's not even pope yet. This is a man who has been so, so busy already. Yeah, like he's clearly got enough influence that people trust him enough to do this stuff. He is a big fish. But he will be pope so soon. Because it's while he's away in Gaul settling this dispute between the two imperial men that Pope Sixtus III dies on March 28th of 440. And without a doubt at this point, it's very obvious that Leo was the clear choice to be his replacement. And it seemed that everyone was in total agreement of this. No one thought that there should be someone else as Pope except for Leo. So that's why we have this unusual sort of like voluntary sede vacante that happened while Leo is on his way back from Gaul to Rome, because they just, they just kind of waited for him. And then when he gets back, he's unanimously elected on September 29th. Oh, that, yeah. He gets back and they're like, Pope now. Yeah, you're Pope now. We waited for you. Congratulations. Like, so reputation literally precedes him before he even gets there. So, right off the bat, all sources recount how Leo completely throws himself into being Pope. This is not a man who tried to, like, feign humility or whatever. He's like, all right, I'm Pope now, let's go. The Catholic.org article on him says, quote, He saw himself as privileged to sit in the chair of St. Peter as the servant of the servants of God. Where they source this, like, personal introspection on Leo is kind of unmentioned, but it does seem to kind of work with the personality of what we're going to see, so that is not something they have sourced, but it it's about right. Leo's papacy is going to be huge and massive, and there are so many aspects where we could spend hours and hours discussing every little way that he makes his mark on the church. But for the sake of a coherent episode, we're going to dedicate most of our attention to the four main areas where he had the greatest impact. So we're going to look at his combating of heresy, his papal primacy, his Christological orthodoxy, and the protection of Rome. That last one seems out of his scope, but we will learn. Oh yes. Oh yes, we will. <laughs> and for the most part, we're going to be able to actually look at that with like sort of a neat-ish chronological narrative. So we're going to kind of just chunk them out by section, and we may jump back and forth a little bit with the years, but these are the things he was doing, and we're just going to try and keep it neat and tidy as we go. So we're going to deal with the heresy part first, since it's the first thing that Leo took to almost immediately after his election. And this makes sense too, as we'll see from his writings, that Leo felt that heresy was at the most major root of corruption and discord within the church. And if heresy was actively targeted and suppressed, the church would be able to be a lot more unified. And since he'd been the reconciliation guy, he probably felt this way too because of his own experience going around and trying to settle these disputes. Very shortly after becoming Pope, 
Leo was made aware by Septimius, the bishop of Altinum, that in the bishopric of Aquileia, Pelagians were being received back into communion without requiring the heretics to renounce their beliefs or undergo any penance. And not just the laity either, because people who had served as priests and deacons and other clergymen were also being fully admitted to communion, despite having been known as Pelagian supporters. And as we know, the church had taken a hard stance against Pelagianism since Pope Zosimus's Tractoria, episode 43, he got there in the end, and had been dedicated to putting a stop to Pelagianism all the way to confronting it in Britannia, so the fact that the Aquilean church is letting this very important issue slide is hugely problematic. So Pope Leo doesn't hesitate to quickly intervene on this issue, and he addresses the Aquilean clergy to condemn it and put a stop to their practices in his epistle number one. Epistle number one. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, we have so many epistles from this man. Well, he's doing his job. He's doing his job, and he's, he's getting at it right away. So, he says, quote, We have understood that certain priests and deacons of the clergy of various orders in your province who have been drawn in by the Pelagian or Celestian heresy have attained to Catholic communion without any recantation of their peculiar error being required of them, and that, while the shepherds set to watch were fast asleep, Wolves, clothed in sheepskins, but without laying aside their bestial minds, have entered into the Lord's sheepfold. And yet I am sure they could not do this if the rulers of the churches had exercised their rightful diligence in the matter of receiving such, and had not allowed any of them to wander from place to place. So he's like, guys, I hear you're slipping. We're not doing a good job. Hey, hey, what you guys doing over there? It's wrong. It's wrong. Those wolves are in there with your sheep. What are you going to do about it? So he also orders Aquileia to call a provincial synod. And in this synod, he required that any known Pelagian who had been admitted to the church to publicly abjure Pelagianism and sign a, quote, unequivocal confession of the faith before they could be received into the church for future communion. And anybody who wouldn't sign this or publicly abjure Pelagianism would be cast from the church entirely. From the same letter, quote, Let them, by their public confession, condemn the authors of this presumptuous error and renounce all that the universal church has repudiated in their doctrine. And let them announce by full and open statements, signed by their own hand, that they embrace and entirely approve of all the synodal decrees which the authority of the apostolic see has ratified to the rooting out of their heresy. Let nothing obscure, nothing ambiguous be found in their words. For we know that their cunning is such that they only reckon that the meaning of any particular clause of their ex-rural doctrine can be defended if they only keep it distinct from the main body of their damnable views. So, sign it up and make it very clear so they can't kind of prevaricate around the language. So that's Pelagians. He's getting rid of them in Aquileia, and he's hitting it hard in a way like, you sign this or you are expelled. So, very, very clear. But what about Manny and friends? What about Manny and friends? They're always popping up. Well, in 439, shortly before Leo became Pope, a large population of Manichaeans were driven out of where they had settled in Africa by the invading Vandals. 
The Vandals, just for clarification, are an East Germanic tribe led by King Genseric, and they are invading Africa. So many of these invading people are just like what we call alternative groups today, like a punk rock band or yeah. like people who wear dark clothing. It's just... <laughs> Oh, and we're not done yet, so we'll see. There's actually another one that we're going to be dealing with that is also an alternative name for someone. I'm not going to give it away quite yet because I don't want to hint to you too much what we're going to cover, but it will be in this episode. I'm waiting for you to like be like, the scene kids came out from Germany. <laughs> well, they're all coming out of Germany. So we've got the Vandals, and we've got the Goths, and now we're going to have another one a little bit closer on. So yeah. So right now, they are invading the hell out of Africa. Like, invasions are happening everywhere right now, by the way. Like, the empire is really starting to crumble, but we're going to deal with that in parts as we come to it with the church. So just keep in mind that uh, this is where things really start to look very dangerous for the rest of the empire. Invasions everywhere. That's a long way to walk, like, from Germany to Africa. That's a trek. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's not the only place they're going after, but that's where they're going to have the most success. So these Manichaeans who had fled Africa when the Vandals came ended up in Rome and had secretly organized themselves into a clandestine community. You're not supposed to go there. You were kicked out. That's why you were in Africa. <laughs> so they came back and they organized secretly, like right under the nose of the Catholic Church. and. In about 443, in 443, the secret gets out, and Pope Leo discovers the news of this secret Manichaean community in Rome. They're underground raves. Yes, and he's so, so mad about it. He's like, no. Who slipped up? Who's that one Manny who wasn't a friend? I don't know, but they got found out. Maybe they left one of their posters or a glow stick. Oh yeah, there was just a glow stick on the ground. Maybe maybe a pacifier attached to, like, a candy necklace. Some shed fishnet in the corner, you know? They just didn't do a good job of their cleanup. In the article, Manichae, Leo the Great and Orthodox Panopticon, historian Harry O'Meyer points out that Leo felt that the Manichaeans had come to, quote, embody all that was antithetical to the ideals of Christian society, end quote condemning them for, quote, secrecy, sorcery, the use of magical arts, and the practice of sordid ritual. So this is definitely a Manichaean rave. It is a rave. <laughs> secrecy, sorcery, use of magical arts, and the practice of sordid ritual. Yeah, it's a rave. The EDM, like, echoes throughout the, the neighborhood. And I mean, it's it's a little ironic when you consider that, you know, only... A hundred years ago or so, the Christian church had been in the same position of these secret hidden society and accused of, like, all these outlandish charges of sorcery, like, not that long ago. But here he is, just clamping down on the Manichaean raves. So Leo decides he's going to attack the secret community head-on, bring them out of the shadows, and publicly debate their leaders and condemn their ideologies and burn their books for all of the laity of Rome to view. Pretty extreme. We haven't seen that yet. Burn some Manny books. Burn some Manny books. The little the little book of big thoughts. <laughs> the, the little book of calm. That's what it's called. The little book of calm. He's going to burn their little book of calm. 
Didn't like how they were getting calm, I guess. He's he's not about it. He's like, you have these theologies about calm and still you're raving. It's not acceptable. So he regularly, publicly, and very, very emphatically starts sermonizing, warning the Christians against the dangers of heresy and to be on their guard against being seduced by the Manichaeans, and decreeing that if they knew anything about the Manichaeans, including, like, where they were, where they lived, or where they were meeting, to bring it to the clergy immediately. If you see a poster advertising a rave, you need to bring it to the church so we can shut it down. And at least six of Leo's sermons on the Manichaeans have been preserved. So, we actually know this in quite detail. And then, Leo called forth a full-on investigation to examine all of the major leaders within Rome. Like, not only the presbyters, but the senators and the civil authority as well. So, he's going to investigate and make sure that they are not Manichaeans. Gotta make sure there's no glitter on them. Exactly, yeah. No glow stick juice. No, like, heavily dilated pupils. (laughs) And for the record, Emperor Valentinian III was full in agreement here and issued an edict of his own outlining new punishments for Manichaeans who had been previously banished from the city, discussed in episode 45. So they are doing a full-on investigation and they're bringing in new punishments at the same time. So some Manichaeans who were found out at this time did, in fact, convert to re-enter the church, but the majority who were found out didn't and were driven out of Rome. Not very surprising. But Leo takes this one step further. If the Manichaeans could create a secret community in Rome, of all places, then they could do it anywhere. So on January 30th of 444, Pope Leo sends out a letter to all of the bishops in Italy warning them against the secret Manichaean communities and ordering them to investigate in their own episcopates and root out the heretics. This is Epistle 7. Quote, We call you to a share in our anxiety, that with the diligence of shepherds you may take more careful heed to your flocks entrusted to you, that no craft of the devils be permitted. Our search has discovered in the city a great many followers and teachers of the Manichaean impiety. Our watchfulness has proclaimed them, and our authority and censure has checked them. Those whom we could reform we have corrected and driven to condemn Manichaeus with his preachings and teachings by public confession in the church and by the subscription of their own hand, and thus we have lifted those who have acknowledged their fault from the pit of their iniquity by granting them room for repentance. A good many, however, who had so deeply involved themselves that no remedy could assist them, have been subjected to the laws in accordance with the constitution of our Christian princes, and lest they should pollute the holy flock by their contagion, have been banished into perpetual exile by public judges. He also sent them the documents which recorded exactly how he had proceeded against the Manichaeans in Rome to serve as a model for the further-flung bishops so that they could follow his example and drive the Manichaeans out of their jurisdictions as well. And this spread far beyond even Italy, with many of the Asiatic Episcopates also taking up Leo's example. So they're driving out Manichaeans everywhere. It's pretty successful. No manis. You gotta go somewhere else. Have your raves in another country. Russia? Where can they go? I don't 
know where they can go. They have to go outside of the Empire, so it's going to be pretty far for them. Asia. Well, they do end up in Asia. Nathan Cherry of the Silk Road History Podcast has released, by the time that this episode comes out, he will have released his episodes on the Manichaeans in Asia, so check that out. So they do go to Asia. They go everywhere. They just need to find a place to have their raves in peace. Yeah, exactly. Not that that's what they're going to actually do, because they they just have this thing where they need to go where they're not supposed to be. But we'll come back to that in time. And then there are the Priscillianists. This is a group of adherents of Priscillian, who we talked about initially in Pope Sericius's episode, episode 40. Brief summary there. Priscillian was a bishop of Avila in Spain, who was an extreme ascetic and worshipped in extremely unorthodox ways. You know, he had the church services outside of churches, he let men and women pray together, and he had kind of Gnostic views of perfection on the three levels of mind, body, and spirit. The ladies can touch things. Yeah, they can touch things and they can pray with men. He was the first Christian to be executed for heresy in 383 when two other bishops in Spain had presented a case against him to the usurper emperor Magnus Maximus who went, like, way too far and had Priscillian beheaded. Mm. Do you remember this? Yeah, the, the Joffrey Baratheon too far. Exactly. So the Pope had not supported the execution and had excommunicated the bishops who brought the case of Priscillian to the emperor, and then he had attempted to restore the Priscillian followers to the church. But that hadn't gone well. The followers of Priscillian opted instead to continue the teachings of their lost bishops and expand and propagate his theology by absorbing some Manichaean ideas about dualism and the kingdoms of light and darkness. Oh. Yeah, it paired really well with the Priscillians' thoughts on the individual practice of perfection and receiving the light of God. So they had just kind of absorbed some of that and went, nah, we're not going to go back to the church that killed our dude. And so Priscillianism spread and it attracted new followers, especially in Spain. And this attracted the attention of Bishop Terribius of Astorga, who investigated and was shocked to learn just how prevalent Priscillian ideas were across the Spanish clergy. So he wrote a detailed refutation of Priscillianism and a report on the spread throughout the clergy and the condition of the Spanish churches, and sent this to the bishops in Africa, who, remember, are tied tangentially to the administration of Spain, and to Pope Leo. And when Leo received the letter, he went straight into action and wrote a very long and detailed treatise outlining a full reputation of the errors of Priscillianism, which was sent on July 1st of 447. I'm not going to quote this one here because it is so very long, but it is Epistle 15, the letter to Tiberius, and we will put it in the show notes. Leo then also ordered a general Spanish council with all of the bishops from Spain and some of the neighboring provinces to, like with the Manichaeans, investigate any Priscillianists that they found in their respective episcopates. He outlined that the inquiry should be extensive and rigorous to determine whether or not any of the bishops were, you know, tainted with Priscillian views. And if they were, they were to be excommunicated immediately. Like, Leo is very clear that heresy must be purged and not allowed to spread by any means within the church. 
And like he had when he had written to his Italian bishops, he also sent this order with the documents of his Manichaean investigation so that they could use it as a model as well. So we're really seeing a sense of uniformity and policy implemented here that we haven't seen on this scale before. We're seeing him not only writing to them and saying, deal with this issue. He's saying, deal with this issue by calling a council and having an investigation, and this is what it should look like. So, that's pretty good. Now, <laughs> normally, this would constitute an entire episode for an early pope, everything that we have talked about so far. And we would now be talking about how he died and then ranking him. That was just the heresy part. That was just the heresy part. We are on, like, page five out of 18. Ooh, boy. We are only getting started. We're not even at the big, big heresy issues yet. More heresies. Yeah, that's where we're going to get into that orthodoxy discussion, so. But first, we're going to explore Leo's ideas on papal primacy and how he put them into practice, because this is absolutely huge. Like, if we thought Damasus did a lot for papal primacy, he's going to look very small in comparison to this. So, in order to explore this with the full context, we need to do a little bit of recapping and look at kind of what's going on in the empire at this point. Because during Leo's papacy, like we mentioned, the Western Empire is starting to, like, crumble and fall apart. This episode is so long and so heavy on details that we're going to be really, really brief about this. There are podcasts on this whole crumbling of the West, so by all means, check them out in tandem with this. But in short, the Emperor in the West, Valentinian III, has had nothing but a turbulent reign. He became Emperor in his infancy, and most of his time ruling was under the regency of his mother, and even as an adult, he had staggeringly little control. And everywhere around him, the borders of the empire are threatened by barbarian invasion. We've got the Vandals, the East Germanic tribe out of current-day Poland, the Swabi, which are Germanic, and we also have the Huns from Central Asia. So remember when I said we'd have another alternate name for people? This is our MLM mums. Uh-huh. And then the emperor is going to alienate and murder his best general, which doesn't help at all. That's Aetius. Aetius again. Oh, gone. He full-on murders Aetius. Like, personally and in the face. Oh, in the face. In the face murder. Just, like, lunges at him and, like, smashes his head in. That's some hard betrayal. How do you do that to somebody? I don't know. He's like, you're a traitor and I'm just gonna bash your face in. And that's mm. pretty much exactly what he does. You gotta be real mad. Not good. It is so bad. So bad that by the time that Valentinian III dies in 455, assassinated by two followers of Aetius. <laughs> they were, uh, not pleased. No. So by the time he dies, the Roman Empire had lost control of nearly all of the provinces in Spain, most of Gaul, and Africa. So they have lost a huge, substantial amount of territory. We're going to look at a couple of these situations in a little bit more detail later on, but this gives us just a, a small look at how precarious things are in the West. Like, imperial authority is in shambles, 
The borders are constantly under threat or being totally obliterated by invasion. Armies are being cut down. The imperial finances are in crisis. And as the church saw it, morality was being consistently violated. They would. Yeah, they would. So this is the perfect moment for the Bishop of Rome to actively take more power and influence than they ever have before. Everything is falling apart, and Leo can step right into the chaos and be the powerful force that the West needs. And this is exactly what he did, while publicly setting up a concrete foundation to keep it that way. Leo took the idea of apostolic succession so seriously. Like, a hundred times more seriously than anyone else we've looked at. He outlined and wrote extensively about the special relationship he shared with the apostle as the, quote, unworthy heir, representative, and deputy of Peter, and how he was obligated to follow his example and authority based on the special relationship that Christ had had with Peter. Peter is a part of everything that was Christ's, and his successor were meant to occupy that same level of participation and direct power. And he is going to make this concept so intensely intrinsic to the papacy that everything he does within his papacy comes back to this idea. He will write prolifically on the scriptural basis for apostolic succession, like Matthew 16 to 19, you know, that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. He will sermonize extensively on how the Apostle Peter's rock was passed on to them and use even imperial support to solidify and validate that the Pope is prime. Because even though we've seen popes in this time attempt to push for a stronger influence as the successors of the Apostle, the concept still wasn't fully taken in at this point. In most cases, the Pope was still referred to as primus inter pares, which is first among equals with the larger patriarchs of the Church of Alexandria, Antioch, more recently Constantinople. They're all kind of equal, and Rome's just kind of like the first of those equals. Damasus had started to change that a little, but with Leo, first among equals was not going to cut it, because being the direct successor to the Apostle Peter, by its every virtue, put him as the most supreme to oversee the others. The patriarchs, like all other bishops, were responsible for caring for their flock of, like, their see, but Rome is responsible for the whole of the church, and he wants to make that very, very clear. He's in charge. I'm in charge, I'm in charge, and I'm in charge so much more than you're in charge. And it was up to him now, trying to put this message out there that way, that he had to defend his innate apostolic rights and maintain ecclesiastical discipline and doctrine to bring the entire church together. So he dedicated himself to bringing all of the episcopates into orthodoxy and into unity and to put bishops in their place whenever and wherever he had to. So we're going to look at some of the places where he put this concept into action. And the big one here is the situation that arose in Gaul with St. Hilary, the Bishop of Arles. Out there, he's the Bishop of Arles, and he is a saint, despite how troublesome he was for the Pope at this time. But hey, you know, bygones be bygones by the end. So we've discussed the authoritative issue that the papacy has been having with Gaul since Pope Zosimus 
made the Bishop of Arles the Metropolitan Bishop slash Vicariate of Gaul. And then Boniface had reduced that authority and made Narbonne and Vienne equal to Arles. But this had remained somewhat a point of contention and disruption in Gaul, as we have seen. And now the new bishop in this role, Hilary, is not making the situation any better because he totally wants to assert his authority over all the other bishops in the area and interfere as often as he possibly can, including insisting that all of the bishops in Gaul should be consecrated by him rather than their regional metropolitans. So only he, he's saying, can consecrate bishops in Gaul at all. And so this kicks off when Leo receives an appeal in 443 from Caledonius of Basancon, who had been deposed by Hilary and immediately replaced with one of Hilary's new choices, Importunus. Hilary had publicly denounced Caledonius based on claims that his consecration to the bishopric was in violation of a canon law. Like, why specifically, we don't know, because several options are suggested. Maybe he had been a layman rather than a priest, or maybe he had married a widow, or that he'd been some sort of civil public officer who had consented to passing a death sentence on someone. So, could be any of those. We can take our pick. Something. Something. Someone. <laughs> and I'm thinking of that country song now where it's like some beach somewhere. <sighs> yeah. Caledonius, on the other hand, claimed that his deposition was really on account of his refusal to recognize that Hillary had primacy over him and or claiming that Besancon had the rights of a metropolitan episcopate, which by all rights, it did. So he wrote his appeal and allegedly headed to Rome to meet with the Pope directly. So he writes a letter, he sends it off, and then he's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to meet with the Pope. Uh, the letter's going to get there before me, but I'm going to go anyways. Around the same time, the Pope also received a complaint from Bishop Projectus of Narbonne. Projectus had become sick. And while he was sick, Hillary had decided to just depose him and issue a replacement. What? I guess they didn't have any labor laws back then. Yeah, but this is a deposition with no canonical reason behind it. And as soon as Projectus was recovered, he's like, Hey, I've been kicked out of my job because I was sick. And in this, Projectus was also really supported by his congregation because they liked him. And they're like, hey, he got sick, he didn't die. And so they all wrote to Leo as well, asking to have Projectus reinstated. And this righteously ticks Leo off. You know, when, when commenting on this situation in a later epistle, his tone is pretty clear. He says, quote, It had not been permitted for their bishop Projectus to be sick, and his bishopric had been transferred to another without his knowledge, and Hilary, the invader, had introduced a successor for a man still alive as filling a vacant seat. That's Epistle 10. Now, before we jump too hard on Hillary, in the book Leo the Great and the Spiritual Rebuilding of Rome by historian Suzanne Wessel, she points out that a council had been held in Gaul in 441 presided over by Hillary, known as the Council of Orange. Orange? Yeah, the Council of Orange. And they had made a canon decree that a bishop who was infirm should be removed from his office until he recovered. So 
perhaps this is where Hillary is coming from in this case, but it seems like he's leaning hard on where he can use his power and put his people into position. And he was the one who made this quote-unquote canon law, so yeah, not super, super legit. I mean, I understand, like, temporary replacement, but, like, firing him seems a bit... Here, I'm just deposing you. This isn't your job anymore because you have to lay in bed for a while. Because you got sick. So none of this is going to be good for Hillary. And when he finds out that Caledonius and a few of his supporters have already left for Rome to present their case in person, Hillary quickly follows in an attempt to defend himself and his decision. So he's like, oh, crap, now I have to go to Rome. And when he arrives, Leo decides, okay, you know what, I'm going to hold a synod to hear the merits of Caledonius's case fresh, even though I've probably already heard it, because he's here. And Caledonius is easily able to acquit himself. And Hillary's defenses don't persuade the Pope in the slightest. In fact, it seems like the exchange between the bishop and the Pope was fairly heated, and there's some implications that Hillary refused to recognize Leo's right to intervene or judge on this matter, and that he left before the synod came to a conclusion. So this Pope who thinks that it's his job to see over everything, and you're like, nah, you don't have the right to do that, and I'm out of here. Ooh, it's not going to go well. And the outcome makes it clear that Leo was going to call that bluff in a big way. So... He overturns the decision of Hillary Synod, reinstates Caledonius to his bishopric, and while he's at it, he also reinstates Projectus by citing a canon that a bishop should never be removed without just cause, and a canon indicated that his bishop, who did not need replacing, should be replaced by a metropolitan episcopate in the area. So if somebody needs replacing, Hillary's not the guy to do that. But that wasn't really enough for Leo. If someone was going to challenge his authority, he was going to ensure that they became an example. So he just strips all of Hillary's jurisdictions over any of the other Gallic provinces, downgrading Arles to just a diocese. No longer a vicariate, no longer a metropolitan, just a bishop with a diocese. No right to consecrate bishops, no rights to hold synods, no rights to interfere anywhere. He makes sure that all the other bishops in the province know this, and that all the other provinces around know this, by addressing an epistle to them through the bishops of Vienne, which is Epistle 10. And he's not quite done with putting Hillary in his place either, because he's going to do one significantly more important thing. Yes, what is it? He turns to the emperor, Valentinian III, and has him issue an edict that validates everything that the Pope has just decreed from Rome and makes the primacy of Rome law. This is the Decree on Papal Power of June 6th, 445. And I'm going to read you just the version of it because it is so important. This is like the Edict of Toleration. This is like the legalization and favoring of the church. Now, this is law that the Pope is the primary authority. So here we go. Quote, Since then, the primacy of the apostolic see is established by the merit of St. Peter, who is the chief among the bishops, by the majesty of the city of Rome, 
And finally, by the authority of a holy council, no one, without inexcusable presumption, may attempt anything against the authority of that see. Peace will be secured among the churches if everyone recognizes his ruler. Lest even a slight commotion should arise in the churches, or the religious order be disturbed, we herewith permanently decree that not only the bishops of Gaul, but those of the other provinces shall attempt nothing counter to the ancient custom without the authority of the venerable father of the eternal city. Whatever shall be sanctioned by the authority of the apostolic see shall be law to they and to everyone else, so that if one of the bishops be summoned by the judgment of the Roman bishop and shall neglect to appear, he shall be forced by the moderator of his province to present himself. In all respects, let the privileges be maintained which our deified predecessors have conferred upon the Roman church. So that's pretty huge. This is law now. Everything goes through Rome. Everything defers to Rome and you have no choice. There's also a section in the middle of the text that goes on specifically about the Gallic situation and Bishop Hillary that nothing should be done in Gaul contrary to the ancient usage without the authority of the Bishop of Rome, and that the decree of the Apostolic See should henceforth be law, but how large that actual chunk is can't be found online or in English, despite me reaching out to like several sources and looking for so many versions, all the ones that I found have this little insertion that says, after a reference to the independent action of certain prelates in Gaul, the edict continues. So it doesn't actually tell you what it says, but we know that that's what it was about. But let's stop and think about this for a moment beyond what this meant for Hillary and for Gaul, now separated from any obeisance to him. This is imperial law placed over the church with actual legal penalties declaring to the whole empire that the Pope is the first, foremost, and highest authority over the entire church. This is huge. Remember when we spoke with Jonathan Adley in our collaboration on Athanasius, and he talked about how the churches of Egypt and Africa would have never even thought of papal primacy as a concept, let alone a reality? Yeah. Now they can't ignore it. This is imperial recognition and implementation of spiritual authority across the board. Like I said before, huge as the Edict of Milan that legalizes Christianity, huge as the Fide Catholica that makes Christianity the official state religion. This is the biggest of the big. And of course, this was sent to all of the bishops of Gaul who supported Leo and confirmed his demotion of Hillary, and then it was sent to the rest of the empire. So everyone has a copy of this, and everyone knows what's going on. Now, as for Hillary, he was definitely sufficiently cowed at this point. He realized that he had overstepped his boundaries a lot, and he submitted to the measures against him pretty easily. He called the wrong bluff, and so he just accepted his reduced position and worked towards reconciling with Leo. Like, this whole time, he's like, I am so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I just want to reconcile. It's okay now. I accept this lower position. Please, please just take me back. And it worked, because when Hillary died in 449, Pope Leo recognized him as Beate Memoriae, or of blessed memory. So 
they worked it out in the end. There's also a small little hiccup in Gaul with Hilary's successor, Ravenius, when he consecrated a new bishop to fill the vacated bishopric of Vaison after its bishop had died, which kind of upset the bishop of Vienne because Arl shouldn't be doing those things anymore. But at the same time, Ravenius had written to the Pope directly and begged him to restore the rights of Arl, basically promising that he wasn't going to be another Hillary. So Leo agrees, and he sends an epistle on May 5th of 540, which is Epistle 66. We went from Epistle 10 to Epistle 66. Lots of writing. That fairly divided up territory between the Bishop of Arles and Vienne, so they didn't need to be rivals anymore. And then Ravenius confirmed this in a synodal letter as a show of faith and deference to Leo. And this is just one of the many examples of how Leo asserted papal primacy in action. And we're caught between the time constraints of this episode, and there's so much to talk about, but wanting to make sure that there is enough credit for him for how big this is, we're just going to point and recap a few others without going into as much detail. So let's look at Africa. Like we've been saying, Africa at this time is besieged quite heavily by the Vandals, and the Empire seemed pretty helpless to stop at this point, to the point where a Vandal kingdom was founded in Africa under Genseric in 435. Put a pin in him. We're coming back to him later. And that kingdom is going to be there till the 530s. So this kingdom's going to last over a 100 years. But the province of Mauritania Caesariensis, which is now Algeria, was one area that had kind of been spared by the Vandal invasion and remained under control of the empire. But clearly, it's this tiny little area with this ongoing threat. They were in need of all of the support that they could get. And this was particularly important to Leo because the Vandals were by and large Aryan Christians. And the ongoing conflict in Africa had left Mauritania without a strong church administration. So the church needed the protection of the Bishop of Rome and every clarification that they could get to ensure that the church there stayed strong and orthodox. So Leo sent a legate called Potentius. He sends him to Africa, to Mauritania, to become more informed exactly on what was needed. And then when he gets that information, he wrote a detailed epistle of instructions on how to best restructure and bring order to the church. It's a 13-part epistle that covers, like, appointment of bishops that are suitable to the role, clerical marriage, celibacy, not marrying widows, not promoting too quickly, consolidating bishoprics that are too small into larger, more streamlined ones, confirming certain converted heretics to keep the roles that they occupy, not ordaining from the laity, and then there are sections that deal with women who have experienced violence during the Vandal invasion. Now, these are interesting because the headers of these sections are things like maidens who have suffered violence are not to compare themselves with others, and virgins violated against their will are to be treated as somewhat different to others, but not to be denied communion. These sections basically discuss not holding women accountable for what happened to them, because they, quote, did not lose in spirit what they may have lost in body, unquote. Okay, I mean, that's that's good thing, but also, like, that they had to clarify that. Yeah. 
But they also need to clarify that they couldn't be considered undefiled virgins if they had made a holy vow of virginity. So if they had experienced this level of violence, they couldn't be considered undefiled virgins. But, quote, Yet, if they persevere in the virgin life and in heart and in mind under their guard reality of chastity, participation in the sacraments is not to be denied them, because it is unfair that they should be accused or branded for what their wishes did not surrender, but was stolen by the violence of foes. So that's a thing they had to legislate in Africa, which tells you how bad things are getting. It's not a good time to be invaded. It's interesting to see this in writing because it's a lot more progressive than a lot of the views we're going to see throughout the rest of the medieval era, but it's also not, like, 100%. So, this is Epistle 12, and if you are looking to read this and get some more insight on that section, it's section 8 and 11 on the women issues. Moving away from Africa, though, a similar situation arose in Narbonne in Gaul due to Gothic invasions. Goths are back. Are you seeing a pattern here? Invasions everywhere. Everywhere. So they had siege Narbonne in 436. Just like the Vandals, the Goths brought with them very, very strong Arianism. So the Bishop of Narbonne, Rusticus, who was faced with the violence of the invasion, as well as, you know, a rival Arian bishop appointed by the Goths, completely lost heart in his whole situation and wrote to Pope Leo to renounce his position as bishop, even going so far as to suggest his own successor. So he's like, I can't do this anymore. I am not the right person. I am not strong enough. This is who you should put in my place. Leo received his letter and wrote back in Epistle 167 to dissuade him from abdicating, writing encouragement and reminders to trust in the promises of God and then invited him to come to Rome to speak with him directly, if he's still feeling not quite sure. And Rusticus was deeply inspired by Leo. And after this, you know, kind of fumbling of his faith, he worked hard after to consolidate the Orthodox Catholics against Gothic Arianism in Gaul, and he rebuilt the cathedral in Narbonne, becoming quite an active church figure for years to come. And he is well-documented at future church councils and synods. So this is a man who almost left the church. And now he's going to be recorded as a very, very active churchman for years and years and years. And coming to Rome for councils and synods and such. So he really turned him around. Now in Illyria, there was a new archbishop of Thessalonica, Anastasius. Another Anastasius. Oh, I just read about so many Anastasii, so... Yeah, we're coming back to that. Now, remember, Thessalonica had been serving as a papal vicariate and has jurisdictional authority over all of the episcopates within Illyria, with all the rights that Hillary and Gaul had wanted, you know, to call synods and councils, consecrate metropolitan bishops, and to be the one of the Pope's first representatives. But that didn't change the fact that all significant matters were still to be brought to the attention of the bishop in Rome. And... Anastasius wasn't a great follower of that, and he had a tendency to be like Hillary in that he wanted to use his own power to the fullest extent that it would go, and it suggested that this included using violence against his bishops, particularly in the case of Atticus, the metropolitan bishop of Epirus, who was apparently forced to endure, like, brutal winter travel while he was super, super ill, 
at Anastasius's demand to come to him and answer for some wrongdoing. Oh no. Yeah, not so good. So when Leo was made aware of this, he wrote a very strongly worded letter to Anastasius, charging him with excessive use of power, a lack of consultation with Rome, and cruelty. Quote, I am quite dumbfounded, beloved brother. Yea, and I am also sore grieved that you have brought yourself to be so savagely and violently moved against one about whom you'd laid no further information than that when summoned to appear he put off and excused himself on the grounds of illness. Especially when, even if he had deserved such treatment, you should have waited until I replied to your consulting letter. Yet even if he had committed some grave crime and intolerable misdemeanor, you should have waited for our opinion, so as to arrive by no decision at, by yourself until you know our pleasure. We can also see in this letter that this is not the first one that had been sent warning Anastasius that he was crossing the line, because Leo makes reference to some past warnings. Quote, for as it was free for you to suspend the more important matters and the harder issues when you waited for our opinion, there was no reason nor necessity for you to go out of your way to decide what was beyond your powers, for you have numerous written warning of ours, in which we have often instructed you to be temperate in all of your actions, that with loving exhortations you might provoke the churches of Christ committed to you at healthy obedience. So he's not happy with this guy at all, and he's not been happy with him for a while. He then lays out in detail exactly what the responsibilities of the vicariate are, and what they are not, and what regulations must be followed if Anastasius wants to keep his position particularly what matters are needed to be consulted with Rome before they could be judged upon. So if you don't listen to this, we're going to go the way of Hillary. Quote, the universal church should converge towards Peter's one seat, and nothing anywhere should be separated from its head. Let him then who knows he has been set over a certain others take it ill that someone had been set over him but let himself render the obedience which he demands of them. And as he does not wish to bear a heavy load of baggage, so let him not dare to place upon another's shoulders a weight that is unsupportable. So get it together, man. If you start pushing my boundaries, it's not going to be good for you. Get it together. And finally, in 477, we see Leo pressing his influence in Sicily to maintain the orthodox practices and bring all church customs into uniformity when he writes to all of the bishops in Sicily to rebuke them for improperly conducting the sacrament of baptism. How do you do it wrong? Whatever. <laughs> How do you do it wrong? Yeah, well, for one, they were baptizing catechumens on the Feast of the Epiphany in January, rather than at Easter when it was supposed to be done, as decreed by Pope Sericius in episode 40. And he literally writes them a massive letter about why Easter was the time for baptism, and why all feasts and festivals must be distinguished from one another, and then he orders that three Sicilian bishops need to attend on the meetings of Rome every six months in order to learn the proper practices so no such error is ever repeated again. So here he's providing correction where there's an error, but now it's absolutely mandatory to accept the summons from the Pope because remember, we have that imperial decree that he can use force to make you. Yeah. So, suffice to say, Leo's influence as Pope is at its absolute peak at this moment. 
And for whatever reason, this always seems to lead to some significant theological debate. Whenever we have a pope who is doing really, really well, they just decide, now's the time to sort out theology. Throughout the course of this podcast, we've seen a tremendous amount of theology come to be questioned and debated and finalized into what is actually going to be orthodoxy. And pretty much always, this has come with either schism or heresy. Some of the big ones that we've looked at are like Arianism over Christ the Son and God the Father, the canon of the Bible, Pelagianism on the nature and the necessity of God's grace, and recently, as we've been looking at, the human and divine natures of Christ and the title of Mary as either Theotokos, God-bearer, or Christikos, the bearer of the human Christ. The last one, the concept of the natures of Christ and how they relate to one another, is categorized as Christology, or the, quote, understanding of Christ. And this is going to be the major, major theological question of the 5th century. And though it will also go beyond it, this is when Christianity really begins to grapple with their understanding of Jesus's humanity and his divinity and how to reconcile that mystery into an articulate, orthodox canon that makes sense for everyone. And in order for us to move forward on this, we're going to have to look at the different concepts to understand how they all play off one another, because it's all going to get very hodgepodgey. So first, Apollinarianism, which we've talked about since Damasus's episode, which was episode 39, argued that Jesus had a divine mind, not a human mind, but that he had a human body and a, quote, lower soul because he had emotions. So this is the view that Christ was neither fully human nor fully God nor both but rather was neither human nor God. So that's Apollinarianism. And it was condemned at a synod in Rome in 368. Nestorianism, from Celestine's episode, episode 45, argued not for two natures of Christ, but two separate beings of Christ. The God and the human Christ, who were independent persons from one another. These are the people who argued that this is why Mary couldn't be the Theotokos God-bearer, because she had only given birth to the human Christ. And that was the view that was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Monophysitism was the belief that Jesus had one and only one nature as a purely divine being. Some Monophysites would go so far as to say that perhaps it was like a mixture of human and divinity, but it was still just one nature, mono-Monophysitism. So to say that he had been a fully human would have compromised his divinity, so they went with, no, he must be entirely and utterly divine. There's no other way to get around it. And this is the view that currently is favored by theologians in the East. The hypostatic union was the understanding of Christ as both fully human and fully God in two natures unified into an individual existence. 
the most complicated one. And this is the view favored in the West at the time that we're talking about. And they felt that Jesus is humanity, so he couldn't be just fully divine. He also had to have humanity because that was critical to the understanding of salvation. So those are kind of the four viewpoints at the forefront. We have Apollinarianism, which is neither human nor God nor both. He's just something else entirely. Nestorianism is two separate beings, let alone two separate natures. Monophysitism is the one and one only nature. And the hypostatic union is this both fully human and fully God, and those two natures exist together in one. Does that make sense? <laughs> Absolutely not. But keep going. It's going to be fundamental for our understanding, so hopefully you can at least fudge it as we go. Suss it out a, a slightly, yeah. Yeah, because we're going to be talking about this for a long time. So this is the debate that's absolutely raging during Leo's papacy. And despite the condemnation at Ephesus, Nestorianism was still around, Monophysitism was growing, and nothing is entirely settled anywhere. And this brings us to Eutyches who was an abbot who was serving in Constantinople in 448. Now, the bishop of Constantinople, Flavian, had excommunicated and deposed Eutyches because Eutyches was an extreme monophysite who had been teaching in Constantinople that Christ had a single divine nature in the, what he called the incarnate word. Interestingly, he had actually been present at the Council of Ephesus in 431, and he had argued very, very strongly against Nestorius, which might have been the reason for his very extreme Monophysite teachings. Like, he's on the other side of the pendulum as Nestorius. So Nestorius is over here going, nope, two separate persons, and Eutyches is over here going, they could not be more singular. It's just one, one and only one. And he gets deposed and excommunicated by his bishop for having these very, very extreme viewpoints. So Eutyches appeals to the Pope, asking to be reinstated to the church and his position. And he also, while he's appealing to the Pope, he appeals to the Emperor, and he receives the support of the Emperor in the East, Theodosius II. And at the same time, Leo receives the appeal, and before he makes a ruling... He writes to Flavian, the bishop of Constantinople, for his account of the situation. Like, look, I'm getting this appeal from a guy you excommunicated. What is actually going on? And Flavian is no slouch. He sends back a full-on report of the synod that had issued the condemnation of Eutyches and a very, very detailed account of the problematic theology that he'd been teaching, this very, very extreme monophysitism. So, Leo responds to Flavian with Epistle 28, which is now known to history as the Tome of Leo. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> this is one of the most important church documents out of the whole of the early church, and will be as important to the council that we're going to talk about shortly as the Nicene Creed was for the Council of Nicaea. 
So this tome of Leo is very important. So the tome is Leo's affirmative doctrine on the incarnation of Christ. He explains in detail that Jesus Christ is one being with two whole and perfect natures, human and divine, which cannot be separated or confused, but are unified. This one that becomes orthodoxy is the most complicated to try and get across. So this tome is a very, very thorough statement of faith, and it will become the foundational text for all of this Christological orthodoxy. It explains how to try and conceptualize the mystery of Christ and precisely why it was important that this hypostatic union of two whole and perfect natures must be understood. And this is what Flavian receives, confirming that he'd been correct in his deposition and excommunication of Eutyches. So, yeah, you did the right thing. This guy's definitely preaching heresy. This doctrine that I have sent you is exactly what you need to follow. And we'll put the Tome of Leo in the show notes as well, because it's one of those documents that is so important to the church. I am not going to read it all for you because, oh goodness God, it is something to wade through, but it'll be there if anybody wants to read it. So all looks pretty well and good. But while this response was on its way to Flavian, the emperor, Theodosius II, decided to call a council in Ephesus to reevaluate the case of Eutyches and make an ecumenical decision on these Christological debates. Because he's like, okay, I support this guy. I'm just going to not wait for the Pope. I'm going to call a council. I'm just going to get this done. So he calls upon Dioscorus, who is the Bishop of Alexandria, to preside over this council. And the council itself is attended very, like, one-sidedly by supporters of Eutyches, which included the man presiding over the council, Dioscorus. Like, he's a huge, huge supporter of Eutyches. So it is very clear how this council is going to go down. Only one Western bishop, Julian of Petoliae, and two legate deacons for Leo were able to attend. So this is very, very Eastern-centric, Eutychian supporter council with only three Western bishops potentially representing the Orthodox approach. So, unsurprisingly, Eutyches is acquitted of any of his wrongdoing and forcibly legally reinstated to his position. And when Flavian actually attends the council and attempts to present the Tome of Leo that he just received, like, look, the Pope has written it in detail for us. Let's read this and we can settle it all. They go, no, not at all. So, they suppress the text, they do not read it, and Flavian is beaten. Whoa! Extreme. It is so extreme. He's beaten by a group of monks led by one called Barsumus, who is quoted as being a wild, illiterate Syrian archimandrite. And then after he's beaten, he's deposed and exiled. Not that that's really going to matter, because he's beaten so badly that he dies three days later. Oh, that's a bad beaten. Yeah, so he came to bring them 
this text and they beat him to death. So there's that. And alongside him, the men who initially accused Eutyches of being a monophysite were also deposed and cast out at this council, having not been allowed to speak when they attended, very much like Flavian. The Pope's legate allegedly was able to speak only one word at the conclusion of the council. Not a whole sentence, not able to say anything else. He got one word out, and it was contradictor, which officially annuls the council in Leo's name, and then he has to take off under the very real threat of violence and make his way back like while people are trying to kill him and prevent him from getting back to the Pope. This escalated so very quickly. It really did. And it is so bad. When Leo was brought news of this council, he's enraged. Like, understandably so, things have gotten so bad. And he immediately repudiated any conclusions made by the council and declared the council to be a latrocinium, or as it's known today, the robber synod. So he calls it the robber synod from here on out. These are thieves in the night. He's not having any of this. He's like, this is absolutely bonkers, and you're all criminals. He then wrote directly to the emperor and the empress to condemn the council and to ask him to call a proper council. In this letter, he says, quote, Which our delegates from the apostolic see saw to be so blasphemous and opposed to the Catholic faith that no pressure could force them to assent. For in the same synod they stoutly protested, as they ought, that the apostolic see would never receive what was being passed, since the whole mystery of the Christian faith is absolutely destroyed, which heaven forfend your grace's reign, unless this abominable wickedness, which exceeds all former blasphemies, be abolished. So he's, he's now messing around. He's like, you need to fix this. Or things are going to get bad. Like, you are wrecking the church. And at the same time that he wrote this letter, he also turns to the Western Emperor, Valentinian III, and his mother to push for the same thing when they visited Rome in 450. So he has written very powerful letters to the East, and when the Western Emperor comes to visit him, he starts sermonizing very powerfully about how bad this is and how the Emperor needs to get involved and he needs to call a proper council, because this is just the worst. This abominable wickedness, which exceeds all former blasphemies, like, this is the worst. But, or rather probably fortunately for Leo, Emperor Theodosius died in 450, right after this happened, falling off a horse. Oh. It is not a graceful or heroic death for him. And his successor, the military general Marcion, was definitely up for a new council. He's not feeling this horrible thing that happened either. So the new council that will be called is the famous Council of Chalcedon 451. And because this is a major, major, major ecumenical council and the foundation of church orthodoxy and how everything is going to go, and this episode is already so long because, oh my god, we're, we're not done yet. Next week, we're going to dedicate an entire episode to the Council of Chalcedon. So, we're just going to skip right over it for now. All right. Mostly. I'm going to give you, like, 
the tiniest little summary of the results. And then we're going to go into so much more detail later. Basically, the outcome of the Council of Chalcedon was the reconciliation of orthodoxy, setting down, like, the official doctrine. So it unequivocally condemns Eutyches and Monophysitism, as well as Nestorianism, and accepts the Tome of Leo as the full and core truth of Christology. Christ's being was the hypostatic union of two whole and perfect natures with neither confusion nor division. The Acts of the Council say of the Tome of Leo, quote, After reading of the foregoing epistle, the most reverend bishops cried out, This is the faith of the fathers, this is the faith of the apostles. So we all believe, thus the Orthodox believe. Anathema to him who does not thus believe. Peter has spoken thus through Leo, so taught the apostles. Piously and truly did Leo teach, so taught Cyril. Everlasting be the memory of Cyril. Leo and Cyril taught the same thing, anathema to him who does not so believe. This is the true faith. Those of us who are Orthodox thus believe, this is the faith of the fathers. End quote. So, if you if you weren't clear on that, that this is the thing. Are you sure? Are you sure it's the thing? This is the thing. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's the thing. So you're just playing the role of the East right now because that's pretty much their response to it. <laughs> so we're going to deal with that in future episodes. But for now, this is the thing. It is the absolute word of the day. Christology has a definitive doctrinal answer confirmed by the Council, confirmed by Leo read everywhere, and recognized as ecumenical. Job done. And now we're going to take a very sharp left turn. Sharp? So sharp. Because we need to talk about Attila the Hun. Ooh. Yeah. Now all of China will know you are here. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yes, exactly. Shanyu is not prepared for what we're about to talk about. A brief summary to put this into context. And um, no, we're not going to cover Attila in his whole life story and major detail because that's a whole podcast series in itself. And if you want that, I highly recommend Flashpoint Histories, nearly four hours of content on him if you want the full picture. That's so much content. Briefly, Attila became the ruler of the Huns which, clarification, are a nomadic tribal people from Central Asia and Eastern Europe, in 434 and very quickly expanded his rule to an entire empire of nomadic peoples. So Attila the Hun was not just responsible for the Huns. He also had Ostrogoths and the Alans as well. And this empire is a force to be reckoned with, as all of history knows. Mm -hmm. So by the point in our story with Leo, Attila and his forces had already been invading the Eastern Empire for over a decade, winning territories and bashing up troops of Eastern Emperor Theodosius II. And during this time where he's bashing things up, taking territories as his prize, around 450, something insanely stupid happens. So stupid. Are you ready for a stupid Yeah. Honoria, who is the sister of the Western Emperor, Valentinian III, had been betrothed to a Roman senator called Bassus Herculanus, and this made Honoria very, very unhappy. 
she didn't want to marry this man. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to marry bath salts either. That's fine. <laughs> well, I don't know if you would have the same response as her, but she devised a grand plan to get herself out of this marriage arrangement. So she writes to Attila the Hun and begs for him to come save her from this unwanted marriage. Does he even speak Roman? Like, he gets a letter and it's just literal nonsense. He would have enough people with him, based on the size of his empire, that he could get translations. Oh, but it gets better. Because in this letter, she also sent Attila her ring. And so Attila receives this letter and takes it to be a marriage proposal from the sister of the emperor. Oh. And he thinks, fantastic. You know, now instead of invading the empire for what I want, I can just demand half the empire as a dowry for our marriage. Perfect. This is wonderful for him. In the meantime, he invades Gaul and takes over cities quite easily on his way to go and collect his new dowry. So the Eastern Emperor, Theodosius, who hasn't yet died at the point that all of this starts, and the Western Emperor Valentinian know nothing about this letter at all. Oh, no. Yeah. It, this has all happened without their knowledge until they receive a letter from Attila demanding his territory as dowry and for them to send Honoria to him to be his wife. So you can imagine they were so not prepared for that letter as they were eating their breakfast in the morning. Mm -mm. So Valentinian pulls a major fit and has to be calmed down by his mother with all of her effort just to keep him from killing his sister on the spot. Fair. Yeah. Valid response. And Theodosius, who's in the East and also gets this letter, writes to Valentinian and says, just, just give her over. Like, let's just, like, we don't want to fight with this man. He has been kicking my ass for decades. Just, just hand her over. It doesn't matter. We won't give him the territory. Hand her over. And Valentinian is like, that. No, no way. So he puts Honoria under house arrest. Now, whether or not Attila really wanted to marry Honoria at all is highly suspect, but this has given him the perfect excuse to head straight for Italy. So he's like, cool. Either way, whether they, they accept this and I get it easily or they reject this and I have all of the grounds to come and fight them and take it, cool. And then... Theodosius dies in the east, so Valentinian has zero allies to back him up, and then his mother, who has done the majority of ruling for all of his time on the throne, dies as well. So he is like, I don't even know what to do. And here comes Attila the Hun. Yeah. But Valentinian has Aetius at this point still. Oh yeah, I forgot about him. Yeah, the military general that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode. You know, the major general that's been kicking ass and taking names all over the empire as it falls down. And so Aetius manages to rise enough forces to meet with Attila on his way through Gaul at Orléans, and a battle ensues. And here, at the Battle of the Catalonian Plains, the Romans actually win. Ooh! Yeah. And this is the first time that Attila has ever been openly defeated, and the Huns get pushed back for the winter. The Huns are going to winter elsewhere. But you can imagine exactly what this does. It lights a huge fire under Attila, and coming the following spring, he drives his forces directly at 
Italy because now he's had time to regroup them all. He's come out of hibernation. Here he is. Yeah. And he's coming in hot. He takes Aquileia and he raises it to the ground. Oh. He storms through and takes Milan, which, remember, for a while had been an imperial capital, and does the same. So, at this point, his proximity forces Valentinian and his imperial forces to withdraw from Ravenna, which is next on the list. And before anyone can do anything, suddenly... Attila the Hun is heading towards the walls of Rome, ready to crush the city as easily as the rest. Like, oh my god, he's at the gates of Rome now. Where's our good general? Well, (laughs) we know what happened to him. He'd been murdered. So much murder. So yeah, the Empire is at a dire crisis moment here. If Attila invades Rome, the entirety of the crumbling West is going down And this half of the empire will be no more. It will just cease to exist. This is a pinnacle moment, and the emperor is completely hamstrung. He has nowhere to go. They're done for. How the hell are they going to get out of this? So he turns to Pope Leo, and Leo's like, I got this. And he leads an envoy straight to meet with Attila the Hun to negotiate. How's that go? He is just going to rock up there and ask the most ferocious military leader in history to leave. He has some massive balls. He sure does. Now, unfortunately for history, very little details are preserved about this meeting. Oh. Yeah, there is a bit of, like, really, really poorly timed shrouding of antiquity here. I've heard my dad mention this before. I think it's one, like, one of his favorite things. Oh, yeah. We know that it took place in northern Italy at Mincio on Lake Garda. We know that Leo was accompanied by two civil authorities, Genadius Avienus, a formal consul, and Memmius Aemilius Trigetius, a former urban prefect. And we know that the meeting ended with the Pope having convinced Attila the Hun to turn back from his invasion. He rolled a nat 20 there. He 100% rolled a nat 20, and Attila the Hun takes his troops and retreats beyond the Danube. Just leaves. Yeah. And everyone is sitting there going, what just happened? Maybe that's why nobody wrote it down. They were so shocked that this had just happened that they don't know what to do with themselves. Well, perhaps whatever Mermy Mermermer and Kokalo didn't know how to write. I mean, it's a consul and an urban prefect. If somebody knew how to write, it was these dudes. But we'll go with Mermerty Bermeners. <laughs> I mean, if that's how they wrote their own name, they definitely didn't know how to write. You said a lot of syllables, but none of them formed like a name shape in my brain. So that was... Genadius Avianus and Memmius Aemilius Trigetius, or commonly now known as Hermione Murmur. Hermione Murmur and whatever else you said. <sighs> well, obviously, because we know almost nothing about what actually went down in this negotiation, it's become a topic of massive historical speculation as to what exactly the Pope said or did, and the accounts are little. So the only real contemporary account 
air bunnies going on here that we have is very small and comes from St. Prosper, who accounted the meeting about three years after it happened. And this is what he said. Now Attila, having once more collected his forces, which had been scattered in Gaul at the Battle of Chalon, took his way through Pannonia into Italy. To the emperor and the senate and Roman people, none of all the proposed plans to oppose the enemy seemed so practicable. Practicable. It's not a word, but it's there. So practicable. Sick. To send legates to the most savage king and beg for peace. Our most blessed Pope Leo, trusting in the help of God, who never fails the righteous in their trials, undertook the task, accompanied by Avianus, a man of consular rank, and the prefect Trigetius. And the outcome was what his faith had foreseen. For when the king had received the embassy, he was so impressed by the presence of the high priest that he ordered his army to give up, war to give up warfare, and, after he had promised peace, he departed beyond the Danube. So, doesn't really tell us a lot. But there is another account from the 8th century by Paul the Deacon that has this to say. Quote, Attila, the leader of the Huns, who was called the Scourge of God, came into Italy inflamed with fury after he had laid waste with most savage frenzy in Thrace and Illyricum, Macedonia and Moesia, Achaia and Greece, Pannonia and Germany. He was utterly cruel in inflicting torture, greedy in plundering, insolent in abuse. He had destroyed Aquileia from the foundations and razed to the ground those regal cities Pavia and Milan. He laid waste many other towns and was rushing down upon Rome. Then Leo had compassion on the calamity of Italy and Rome, and with one of the consuls and a large part of the Roman Senate, he went to meet Attila. The old man of harmless simplicity, venerable in his gray hair and his majestic garb, ready of his own will to give himself entirely for the defense of his flock, went forth to meet the tyrant who was destroying all things. He met Attila, it is said, in the neighborhood on the river Mincio, and he spoke to the grim monarch, saying, quote, The Senate and the people of Rome, once conquerors of the world, now indeed vanquished, come before the suppliants. We pray for mercy and deliverance, O oh, Attila, thou king of kings, thou couldst have no greater glory than to see suppliant at thy feet, this people before whom once all peoples and kings lay suppliant. Thou hast subdued, O oh, Attila, the whole circle of the lands in which it was granted to the Romans, victors over all peoples, to conquer. Now we pray that thou, who hadst conquered others, shouldst conquer thyself, the people have felt thy scourge, now as suppliants they would feel thy mercy. As Leo said these things, Attila stood, looking upon his venerable garb and aspect, silent, as if thinking deeply. And lo, suddenly there were seen the apostles Peter and Paul, clad like bishops, standing by Leo, and one on the right hand, the other on the left. They held swords stretched out over his head, and they threatened Attila with death if he did not obey the Pope's command. Wherefore Attila was appeased, he had raged as one mad, and he, by Leo's intercession, straightway promised a lasting peace and withdrew beyond the Danube. So, pretty impressive sounding. And because of these accounts, records from earlier historians are quick to give Leo all the credit for Attila's departure. And for all intents and purposes, 
praise him as this heroic peacemaker who had saved Rome. The only exception seems to be Priscus, who is writing slightly after this time period, and he speculates that Attila pulled back on his attack on Rome due to superstition of his men that they would meet a similar end as as Alaric, who was the Visigothic king who had sacked Rome in 410. We discussed that in Pope Innocent's episode, episode 42. Because Alaric had died almost immediately after sacking Rome. But of course, as is always the case, modern historians have a few more nuanced speculations. Historian John B. Burry points out that how unlikely it would have been that Attila, who was a heathen king, with no real sentiment for Christianity, would have had much concern over any spiritual argument that Leo might have made, or any concept of, like, the might of the church. For example, it is possible that maybe Leo paid Attila off with gold, or that Leo came to the agreement not to invade based on practical and strategic concerns, like food shortages or outbreaks of diseases in his military camps. and. At the same time as this is happening, the Eastern Emperor Marcion was leading an attack towards the Danube, and the Western General Aetius, who had already defeated him in battle once, was potentially on the move against him again. Totalis Rankium has this whole thing about Aetius and Attila and what an amazing, like, bromance movie it would make, so take that as you will. But murder yeah well that's that's gonna happen yeah it's just killing eve but with <laughs> yeah it would be atius and attila the hun as villanelle and eve mm-hmm. that's that's amazing rob and jamie we figured it out for you here we go you just have to take that show and put their faces on their bodies <laughs> valentinius is in there somewhere yeah he he would be like constantine <laughs> Which is ironic because Constantine is the name of so many emperors. So if you've never watched the show, you're going to have no idea what we're talking about. But cool. Go watch it. Uh, if you like murder and lady semi-bromance, I, I'm not sure. Is it lady bromance? They're not mm. really bromancing. And they're mm. not really romancing. But there's some gray area in between. If you like murder and intensely toxic, obsessive, like, borderline personality relationships, you'll like Killing Eve. (laughs) (laughs) But this is Leo. (laughs) How did we get there? It was Rob and Jamie's fault. Yep. We blame you. So whatever the actual cause was, it was this meeting with Leo that resulted in Attila's retreat. And so... Whether he did something super impressive, or paid them off, or pointed out the problems they were going to have, or superstition, he absolutely deserves to be recognized and credited for this. Thumbs up, gold star. I don't know. What do we give him? An extra point? We're going to give him points! We're going to rate this dude, eventually, when we're done with his life! But of course, Attila choosing to retreat at that very moment didn't really guarantee a lasting ongoing peace, and it was understood still that the issue with Honoria was definitely not over in Attila's eyes, nor were his designs on like heading off Emperor Marcion with an attack or even going after Constantinople. So at this point, it is really only luck that Attila died in a freak hemorrhagic accident in 453. 
freak hemorrhagic. Yeah. Like he just spontaneously splewed blood everywhere. Is that what you're telling me? That is what I'm telling you. They think like he died of, of an excessive spontaneous nosebleed. He could have potentially been poisoned. There are poisons that do that for you. Nothing's been proven. It's just a freak hemorrhagic accident. He had an anime nosebleed and died? Is is that what you just said? 100%. That's what happened to Attila the Hun. Surprise! <laughs> I didn't know that. The Pope met with Attila the Hun. Surprise! And Well, I heard that one a couple times. It didn't quite register. We were, like, jumping on trampolines, and Dad's like, what if I talk to you about Attila the Hun and Pope Leo? And I was like, this is not registering at all. I wish that we grew up closer together so that I could have been jumping on that trampoline, because when Deacon Dad was yelling about Attila the Hun, I would have been listening. Mm, This was when we went to Ember's birthday party at the trampoline place. Oh, so more recently yeah, than that. Yeah, just like in February. <laughs> He's like, hey, hey, Attila the Hun. And I'm like, no, this is not at all sinking in. However, the Hun army under Attila was not the only invading force that threatened the Western Empire at this time, as we've seen throughout this episode already. Attila's not the only one who's going to come to Rome. Three years later... After this whole, oh my god, Attila the Hun is going to invade the city of Rome, in 455, the Vandals, led by King Genseric, arrived at Rome during their ongoing conflict with the new Western Emperor Petronius, who is Valentinian III's successor. And and again, this conflict is also kind of partially over marriage alliances, so they're not doing this very well at this time. No. No, they're not. So, short form. The Vandal King Genseric had his son Hunneric betrothed to Eudocia, who was the daughter of Valentinian III, but not married because Eudocia was still quite young. Like, probably infant young. But when Valentinian III died, his successor, Petronius Maximus, married Valentinian's wife, Eudoxia, and married his son to Eudocia instead. Oops. Oh, they're not great at this marriage thing. They are so not great at this thing. And Valentinian's widow, Eudoxia, was not at all happy about the situation about suddenly being married to this man, succeeding her dead husband, who just married off her daughter, who has a marriage alliance with someone else. So she kind of does a little tiny mini Honoria here and turns to the Vandals, basically asking them to kill her new unwanted husband. I don't want to hate these ladies because I want to be like, girl, right? can we just take them away and like sit them by the pool and give them some margaritas and have them calm down a bit? Well, no, because Genseric is only too happy to come in with the intention of murdering her unwanted husband and he uses the broken marriage alliance to his son as the justification. So. There is no calming down to be had. (laughs) And unfortunately, this time, Leo is not going to be able to save the city from invasion because it was essentially entirely defenseless. The soldiers who were in charge of the city and guarding it and the emperor panicked and fled. So there is literally no guards outside the city of Rome because they have all done a runner. 
The Vandals did breach the walls of Rome, and they did sack the city in 14 days of looting. How many things were there to loot? So, so many things. The city was looted in 410, but that was three days. This is 14 days. They are finding everything. But that being said, the Pope didn't fail entirely here because he was actually able to prevent the Vandals from committing complete destruction by persuading them not to kill Roman citizens or burn buildings, which is, you know, generally the worst part of being sacked. So they looted, but they did not pillage. Good, I guess. So apparently when Genseric and the Vandals arrived at Rome, Pope Leo and members of his clergy went to meet the king, just like they had with Attila. So even though they had absolutely no defenses, they just go down to meet with him and ask for temperance. They're like, look, we're coming to you. Please do not hurt everybody. There are no military forces within the city. There are only civilians who are not going to take arms against you if they're going to be spared. And he's actually able to achieve an agreement from Genseric to spare also the Basilicas of Peter, Paul, and John, where the people of Rome could come and take refuge and get him to agree that the homes in the city wouldn't be burned. So, yeah, the Vandals still absolutely looted all the valuables from the city and left with a substantial cohort of hostages. Valuable hostages? Valuable hostages, yeah, generally. Senatorial hostages, any type of patrician hostage, yeah. But for the most part, Rome survived this invasion with most of its structures and most of its population entirely intact. After 14 days of crazy looting they're pretty much okay. So, after the Vandals retreated, the churches in Rome held solemn services of thanks for their survival, and immediately began to rebuild what had been damaged, and Leo apparently showed no signs of discouragement, and also sent, like, priests and alms to follow the Vandals to provide support for the hostages. This is a man who is doing all the right things. Meanwhile, the Emperor the one who had panicked and fled, Petronius Maximus, was set upon by a Roman mob and killed for being a coward. Like, stoned to death by the people and thrown into the Tiber. Where is your Patronus now? So there's no doubt here that not only for the church, but also for the people of Rome, Leo is way more influential and way more involved than the emperor and more venerable and more respected on all fronts at this point. Like, I could quote so many sources here that talk about these moments being, like, high moral authority pinnacles for him, giving him, like, such temporal power. But really, just telling you the story, you can see how this man has had such a colossal impact for Rome. Finally, we have a couple small things he deserves some credit for, so... Leo actively restored churches after the Vandal invasion, like St. Peter's, and where else needed, like the roof of St. Paul's beyond the walls, after it was destroyed by lightning. He also built churches and structures, like he constructed a basilica over the tomb of Pope Cornelius on the Via Appia, and had a hand in Gallic Placidia's construction for the mosaic on the Arch of Triumph, and participated in the construction of a basilica for St. Stephen. So, building, restoring. 
And in 459, he may have also been the Pope to introduce secret confession to help increase prestige and the authority of priests. So this is an interesting one. Up until this point in history, all confessions were made publicly. Oh, that's, uh, ooh, mmm, mmm, I don't like that. You, yeah, you may not <laughs> like it, for sure, and I don't think that anybody else liked it, too. But this is the first moment that we actually hear where confessions were made secret and private. So, this is recorded in an epistle that Leo wrote to the bishops of Campania. Quote, with regard to penance, what is demanded of the faithful is clearly not that an acknowledgement of the nature of the individual sins written in a little book be read publicly, since it suffices that the states of consciences can be made known to priests alone in secret confession. This is the first time we see that. And that's a pretty strong institution of the church. So we've kind of tucked it in here at the end, but that one's kind of a big deal. But leaving on that note, after such an intense and gargantuan papacy, Pope Leo died on November 10th of 461 of natural causes. Before his death, he had expressed a strong desire to be buried as close as was possible to the tomb of St. Peter. And so at the time, his body was placed in a tomb in the portico, which is like the covered columnated entrance of St. Peter's. But in 688, his remains were moved inside the basilica by Pope Sergius I, where it would be interred in a special altar. I thought he would never die. I know, right? His current tomb, by the way, is still within St. Peter's, and it is now decorated with a massive marble altarpiece carved by Alessandro Algardi in the early 17th century, which depicts Pope Leo meeting with Attila. And it is fabulous so i am going to send you that and you can have a little look it's a painting it's a carving check out that tomb so this is the account the eighth century accounts so you've got attila and you've got pope leo and you've got peter and paul above with their raised swords yeah they got swords like really really sharp poking out swords like don't i know it's taller than most people but like don't get too close to this carving <laughs> Yeah, you can't you can't walk up to it that closely, but yeah, it is spectacular. Attila looks like he's having a time. Well, I mean, if two apostles appeared before your head bearing swords, I think you would have a time too. Someone needs to Photoshop an anime nosebleed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a perfect photo. His face is turned up at the right angle and everything. Uh huh. So that is a colossal, colossal tomb for a colossal, colossal pope. And now we get to rate him. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be a big one. Apatum infallium. Okay, we're gonna run through this really simply, because, yeah. So, warrior for orthodoxy. He took on literally every major heresy of his time. He is the first pope to really and truly assert the primacy of the papacy. You know, theologically does it with the doctrine of Petrin supremacy, apostolic succession. In church practice, with the examples that we listed above. In imperial law, with Valentinian III and the decree of papal power. Like, this is no longer a theoretical concept. This is the law that the Pope is the head of the church. You cannot ignore it. You cannot deny it. It is universal. He's huge for Christology. 
He established the foundational dogmas of Christ's hypostatic union, fully man, fully God, without confusion or separation. I'm going to say that so many times. And for this, he also gets made a doctor of the church, which is that rare title for saints that contribute to theology and doctrine. And he was declared a doctor of the church by Pope Benedict XIV in 1754. He contributed extensively to the writings of the church. We have 96 sermons and 143 of his letters preserved. That is a huge and invaluable resource. Not only for like the church, for church's sake, but like monumental for historians who want to understand the mentality and the context of the church in the 5th century. One of his sermons is still used in the Office of Readings on Christmas, which is pretty profound. The Tome of Leo is the major touchstone of the Council of Chalcedon, and his writing style actually inspires the entire ecclesiastical language called Cursus Leonis, so it's all based of the way that he wrote. He is the first pope to be called the Great. He's known as one of the best administrative popes in the entire church. And I'm going to give you two quotes to end this category for him. One is from our Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI, who says, quote, Leo's papacy was undoubtedly one of the most important in church history significant, most important, at a time when the church was experiencing the greatest obstacles of progress and the hastening disintegration of the Western Empire, the Orient profoundly agitated over dogmatic controversies, he guided the destiny of the Roman and Universal Church. And last quote are, is from Reverend Alban Butler, our favorite source here, quote, the writings of this great pastor are the monuments of his extraordinary genius and piety. His thoughts are true, bright, and strong, and in every sentiment and expression we find a loftiness which raises our admiration. By it we are dazzled and surprised in every period, and whilst we think it is impossible that the style should not sink, we are astonished always to find it swelling in the same tenor with equal dignity and strength. I mean, if I could give him more than a ten. Let's just max him out. Max? Yeah. This is a 20. There is no way around it. Fructus prohibitum. This is the only category he's going to do poorly in because there is no bad press about this man. He does not have a single word on scandal on him. So it's a zero. That's probably the only reason he won't be our top scorer. Oh, how sad. Right? Seculari impactum. All right, the big ones. We're just going to cover the big ones because, I mean, come on. He prevented the invasion of Rome by Attila the Hun in 452 and drastically reduced the violence and destruction of the vandal sacking of Rome in 455. That alone is worth a 10. Are we just going to max him out again? We're, we're going to max him out again, but I'm just going to point it out just because we have to cover him in detail. He actively supported charitable work in Rome particularly during an ongoing famine, a refugee crisis, and otherwise horrible circumstances by bad imperial management and invasion. He ensured that Rome still had a sense of dominant authority and protection while the emperor was running and hiding. And he is known very strongly for his sermons for having the ability to reach the everyday needs and interests of his people, 
So he's like very, even though he is this massive, massive great figure, he still is very personable and people identify with him. So big fat 20 here, I think. Unless you want to give him anything less than Max. No, let's max him out. Maxing him out. There we go. Fossium Sanctus. Oh, we're going to look at a couple here because, oh. Uh... So, the one we normally rate on, I'm going to send you first, but this isn't the one we're going to rate him on this week because, again, not even close to the most famous one. So, it is so bland and it just does nothing Aside from a massive, massive nose. That is a big nose. That is a huge nose. It's coming for you. Yes. So this is the picture of him that is the most famous. And I think this one's got a lot of characters. So we're going to rate him on this. Ooh. So this is from Harao Manzo. And it is dominable. I mean... <laughs> he looks like a like a bear or a big cat just like sitting in the zoo like, I'll eat you. But I agree with it is that big cat feel. I definitely get the Leo here. <laughs> like, I imagine that this is how he rocked up when he met Attila the Hun. And if that man stares you down, you might go, hmm, that's a thing I should pay attention to. Danger. Yeah. He looks like he's going to eat you. He, like, he's an old man. And he kind of has a little bit of that frailty to him, but you still wouldn't mess with him. No, no. He, he looks like a big cat. He looks like Leo in all of ways. So for me, yeah, this is a 10. I don't like it. So what do you want to rate him for, for not liking it? Like a 10. He's scary. All right. So he is, I think, our first Pope to ever receive a full five in this category. Well, I mean, it's not because he's hot. It's just no. because he's very, he's going to get you. If you do not vote for him very well, he will come in the night. He will prowl at you. Like, what's that movie where the, I think it's, is it lions or is it tigers? And they're like stalking that village and just murdering people. Oh, the ones that, oh, what are they called? Oh, God. It's lions. Mm -hmm. the, the, they're in the museum here. The Savo Man Eaters. Yes. The Ghost in the Darkness. That's the one. Yep. Yes. No, they're they're um they're stuffed in the museum here. They yeah. don't look that scary. It's, it's some some bad taxidermy. Oh no. Worst. Oh, those ones. Yeah. Yeah, I see their display. Those are females too. Mhm. Mm Ooh. Well, I mean it's not like male lions eat things. I mean they eat, but they don't hunt. Yes. So, even though we've rated him a full 10, I'm going to show you the image that I probably would have so, so biasly given him bonus points for, because this man was painted by Raphael. So, this is something you need to look at. It's also him meeting Attila, because so famous. But this is a Raphael painting. Gotta open it bigger, because that's too, uh, there's so many ponies with thick ponies. Yep. Chonky ponies. The Pope is riding a chonky pony, but he's not as chonky as the one up front. Peter and Paul are out brandishing their, their swords again. Everyone in this painting is dummy thick. Yeah? There's just a naked man on another pony. <laughs> he's naked over there, isn't Except he? his hat. He's got a hat on. <laughs> well, you need protection. <laughs> he's so protected. This one's amazing, so. Uh, wow. There are a lot of ponies. Where is Attila? I found the Pope. 
And murmur, murmur. And murmur, murmur, yeah. Oh, is this Attila doing his anime nosebleed again? <laughs> yep, that's him right there in the front. I was looking for the, he's in the orange and blue. He's like, whoa. <laughs> wow, he just does the anime nosebleed too. <laughs> yep, he's he's prepared for it, so. Yeah, I bet I bet when it happened for real and he, he died, they were like, this is just what Attila does. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, that's what happened. And, you know, we got Peter and Paul up there with their swords. Yeah, they're doing a brandish. And uh, Peter's got his circular friends. Yep. So this is in the Vatican now, in the Stanza di Raffaello, along with a lot of my other favorite paintings. He, it's not my favorite painter, but he's he's definitely up there, so it is very cool. I like the one yawning over in the corner, the bored horse. <laughs> oh god, I love these paintings because we just look at them forever and just find more exciting things in them. Yeah, he is very bored, isn't he? He looks very sleepy. They're both very sleepy over there. Yeah, well, they rode straight, too. A derpy pony. I still am not sure why this one man, the only man, only naked man, this other man down by Attila has such tight see-through clothing on, you can see <laughs> his abs and belly button. There's no reason for that, Raphael. You know what? One day we're going to do a bonus episode where we just look at these paintings and describe them for you and find all of the weird... There's a garden gnome in the back. Where? He's by the, he's above the naked man. <laughs> there he is. Yep. Yep. That is definitely a garden gnome. So, yeah, this is fantastic. I love it. It would have been worth bonus points, but we don't give bonus points for that. I really need to know the practicality of this naked man. <laughs> Why are you here? Maybe he's like a hostage or something and they're he's making- He's on a pony. <laughs> Maybe he's just- we were talking about nudists before we started recording. We did, and we summoned one. We summoned a nudist. We did. We made a tulpa in our image here. Tempus Pontificus. So how long do you think he was Pope for? This is a trick question. Mm, could be. Um, let's see. He needs to be at least six years. September 29th, 440. To November 10th, 461. 21 years. 21. Yeah, so he gets a score of 5.25, which is pretty good. We have not had a score that high since Sylvester. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. I mean, of course this man is a saint. His feast day is November 10th. Wouldn't it be funny if he wasn't? If he wasn't a saint? Mm-hmm. Well, um, spoiler alert, this man is not a patron saint of anything. I don't Why? understand. I don't know. You'd think he would be the patron saint of everything? He, he's a doctor of the church. If you Google, like, Pope Leo I patron saint, you'll get a lot of churches that claim him as, like, their patron saint, but it's not, like, an official patron sainthood of something. So, I mean, we have to make him the patron saint of something because, my God, that's an error that we need to rectify. Yeah, I want him to be the patron saint of the song from Mulan, Make, make a, a Man, man Out of You. <laughs> okay, all right, I'm going for it. He's defeating the Huns. <laughs> He's defeating... <laughs> he is. Yep, I love it. You know, I send your cousin gifts of that song 
all the time. Jay? I sent him all of the things about how he needs to be a man. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, he doesn't know how to handle it, but like, like once a week. Now he has a, a patron saint for it. Oh, that's what I'm going to send him next, and he's going to be so confused. <laughs> he's going to be so lost. I think he's often lost when talking to me, but yeah. No, I think he's often lost when talking to all of us as a, a group. Are you on drugs? No, stop projecting. Ah. Total score. Okay, so this man who has done so much for the church has scored a 51.25. Ooh, wait, how much did Peter score? Peter scored higher than that. Peter scored a 51.5, so he's 0.25 higher than Leo. <gasps> how dare. I know. And that's because Peter had scandal. That's because Peter was the douchiest face. He had some fructus prohibitum and was a douche. Leo was 100% not a douche. So, okay, there is one final question, and I know the answer, but I think we can say, this man is popey enough. He is pizzazzy enough. Get him a bull. He is so worthy of that bull. Like, yes, I want to write, like, yas in here for him <laughs> instead of just yes, but then he wouldn't color code properly on my spreadsheet. Yeah, don't do that. Then we'll be confused. Congratulations, Leo. You are wholly and utterly deserving of this papal bull. And on that note, we're going to finish very quickly with some thank yous. We have some people to absolve of their temporal sins and punishments. So thank you to Steve Doc Pinko Cloutier. We finally converted you. We gotcha. Thanks for joining us. And you are now absolved. Ego te absolvo. And thank yous we need to make to Rex Factor and to Totalis Rankium. Of course. And we also need to thank the French History Podcast for shouting out about us, like, today. That was awesome. So thank you so very much for that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us during this holy, holy long Pope. But hopefully he was a lot of entertainment because, wow, what a journey. He's going to be forever. So on that note, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.